Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Constructed Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, I have an interview with Clay Adams. Clay is the creator of such great comics like Dead Skin, Dead Skins, Red Xmas, Refried Comics, and Pregnant Bitches of War, currently on Kickstarter. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Clay Adams. Clay, why don't you uh, lead us off with some background about yourself and, uh, and, and some information about your comics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Clay Adams, and I'm the co-creator of Fried Comics. And uh, since 2013, we have uh, created offbeat, irreverent pulp fiction for adult, if not quite mature, readers. <laughs> So if you're a fan of books like Preacher or the show Rick and Morty, uh, it's kind of that vibe. Um, Matt, you did a great job uh, introducing the comics, so I won't go over the names again. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're having a lot of fun. And uh, we have a Kickstarter on right now for the second volume of PBOW. Uh, that's World War Bitch number one. Very cool. And that's uh, how many days into that Kickstarter are you? So we're, I think, a little more than a week in. Okay. Um, I can't remember how, I think we launched maybe last Tuesday, uh, and this is a Thursday. So yeah, a little bit more than a weekend. We're, we've got 100 backers. We're, uh, we're just hovering right underneath that 50% mark. So uh, we're in great shape. Yeah, and so I've seen um, the, the information about this and the, the concept, but do you want to talk about, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the idea originally came out of Deadskins, which is one of the other books you mentioned. Um, that started life as a screenplay. And um, we kind of build Deadskins as uh, the true story of Custer's last stand. Uh, whatever they told you in school is bullshit. And it sort of reimagines Custer's last stand as a uh, sort of zombie apocalypse, although we never use the word zombie. Um, but uh, to make a very long story short, we have a, a subplot in Deadskins where, uh, where sort of the evil soldiers are rounding up all the women and telling them that we, we've got to repopulate the planet. So you're, you know, you're in charge of, of repopulating the planet. Your job is to get pregnant. And uh, they're basically being held captive in this fort. And at the end, when all hell breaks loose, the women get free. Uh, they, they grab the guns from the artillery and these pregnant women uh, storm basically the uh, storm the fort and and take down the bad guys and we thought this was such a great image these pregnant women with guns we uh, we kind of laughed and we're like oh well that should be our next project pregnant bitches of war um, and we laughed at how stupid it sounded and then we then we kind of had a minute where we were like well wait a minute uh, that's it's sort of an interesting title like it definitely grabs your attention what if we could what if we could like take that and make it into something good so. <coughs> We, um, we basically brainstormed and, uh, and came up with this idea where uh, Nikola Tesla, mad scientist Nikola Tesla, was going to be testing out a time machine and he was going to accidentally pluck these six pregnant women from a, a focus group uh, you know, in present day. And they get pulled back into the past and they, they accidentally wind up in pre-World War I Germany. They accidentally kill Hitler. And uh, for some reason, this makes the world worse. And now they're being hunted by the big bad. His name is the Exalted Father. And they have to save the world from a hell of their own creation before their water breaks. And I like to pitch it as The Handmaid's Tale meets Kill Bill. Very and it's cool. truly as wild as that sounds. Yeah. So is this a, uh, is this a same art team from the, the other story or is this a new art team that you have on this book? So this is a new art team for the new volume, and uh, this is this is volume two. Right now, we're kickstarting the first issue of volume two, and um, we have a brand new art team. This is actually Fabio Ramachi, who uh, who has been drawing Red Christmas for us. Uh, we've just been so happy with that collaboration, um, and uh, we we tried to get DJ Parnell, who drew most of volume one. Uh, we tried to get her back for volume two. It just didn't work out with her schedule. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, when that kind of opened up, Fabio jumped on it. And he said, uh, you know, I've, I've had so much fun drawing all this craziness in Red Christmas. I'd love to draw PBOW. He brought along uh, Ilaria Kiyoka, who is a, uh, an Italian artist and colorist. She is doing some amazing things with the color on this book. And I'm, uh, I'm super thrilled to get it out there because I think it's going to be the, the, the best book we've put together yet. So that's uh, that's a pretty good uh, 
a way to uh, get more of the art team when the, the artist is able to, to give you the connection of the colorist. I'm sure maybe they've worked together in the past, which helps, helps that as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I learned early on is that um, you really want to have, you really want to keep your artist happy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've had instances where, uh, you know, artists didn't like the coloring and, and you know, things like that, or, or people didn't like the lettering. Um, and, and, you know, it really, when you're making indie comics, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm sure when you're making uh, corporate comics as well, but, but for sure when you're making indie comics, you, you want everybody on the team to be happy, you want them to be gung-ho, you want them to feel like this is something that they can be proud of. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, I think when you're, when you're kind of young breaking into comics, you sort of think like, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm an auteur, you know, I'm, I'm the director and, and this is my vision and I want everything to, to go and look this way. And I've really uh, completely turned my opinion around. I mean, I, I strongly believe that you hire people for the skills that they have to do what they do best and just sort of set them free and let them run wild. And, uh, and if they're happy and they're having fun, the book is going to look great. So yeah, I always, I always have now, um, artists that I connect with, you know, well, who, who do you want to work with on colors? You know, who, how should we letter? I mean, I even, um, even with putting together the trade dress for this new issue, you know, I looped in both Fabio and Ilaria, um, just to sort of get their opinions and feedback. And they were like, oh my God, nobody ever does this. You know, nobody ever asks our opinion on how the book should look, you know, oh, wow. but, uh, and they were, they were thrilled to be asked. Um, and I think that, I just think those things make a huge difference in team unity and um, people's willingness to, to promote as well. Because if, if it's not something that they're proud of, they're not going to talk about it. Very true. Now, you said that you sort of let them them go, uh, but how much oversight do you have? Do you sort of look at stuff at like the layout stage, the penciling stage, and, and just sort of say, hey, you're on track, keep going, or hey, you kind of, you kind of missed that a little bit. Can we, you know, fix that up a little bit? How much, how much oversight or, or how much review do you have? Yeah, totally. So, um, so yeah, I, I get layouts of everything. I get things in the pencil stage. Um, and basically, I see things and and I can approve or or not approve things at every step of the process. Um, I don't really have to give too many notes to Fabio um, or or Ilaria. Um, You know, I I think I think with Ilaria, the um, I'm going to stop trying to do the Italian pronunciation because I can't quite get that R role uh, to work for me. But uh, I, she, uh, you know, she turned in something for the Kickstarter project image, which was fantastic. It was it was wonderful, but um, there wasn't quite enough contrast. I was worried that at a at a small thumbnail size, uh, the figure wouldn't quite uh, stand out. So uh, she did go back and and make some tweaks there to that. Um, but you know, it's like small stuff, very small stuff. And I, I very rarely have to give notes partly because, you know, these, these people are professionals, uh, partly because, um, you know, I, I'm a professional. And so I, I try to describe everything in the script, uh, as well as I can, um, so that there's no real confusion about what it is that I'm asking for on the, on the page. But I don't try to micromanage and, and tell people, you know, how, how this should work out. Like there are times where Fabio has said, you know, well, I'm looking at this panel and I really feel like there needs to be a reaction shot. So I put in a reaction shot or I really, I really want to focus on this. So I added this extra panel. If you don't like that, then, you know, just let me know. And I mean, nine times out of 10, uh, I like things like that. I would much rather give a script to an artist and see how they interpret it rather than have them just sort of be slavishly devoted to what I wrote in the script. Um, I think that's, it's a collaborative medium. So I think that's when things really kind of come alive. Yeah. And sometimes you get some uh, pleasant surprises that way where like the, those, sl those slight tweaks, um, uh, give you sort of like a new insight into your story or, 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 you know, a, something that you weren't thinking about. So that second set of eyes sometimes is very, very valuable or third set of eyes in, in some cases. Yeah, it, it always, I mean, almost invariably, it makes the book better. 
And uh, that's what I, that's what I love about it. I, I don't want to be, you know, creating these things in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the collaboration. I, I like coming together with a team and bringing something to life. And, uh, and that, that to me is really where the magic happens. Now, if there's, if for some reason I was unclear in the script or, um, you know, or they miss something, there's like an important detail. I might just say, Hey, make sure that you highlight this or, or make sure in the coloring, you know, that this thing kind of stands out. Um, I'll for sure give those notes, but I'm, I'm very, very rarely asking for, um, for any kind of big change. Okay. Uh, here's a question for you. And this is probably uh, somewhat based on my experience, but, um, and I'm, I'm taking a guess here, but um, working with people who English might not be their, their first language, have you found that you have to be um, very clear when you, when you write? Because sometimes I've found working with an artist, say that's, uh, I've worked with a guy who uh, lives in Brazil, so Portuguese is his, his first language. And I have to be careful when I'm writing him a message that I'm not sort of like using like American slang or just not being direct enough. So have you found that that's something you need to be mindful of? So I've heard, I've heard horror stories about this where, um, you know, especially on corporate comics where you don't necessarily uh, have a whole lot of time to go back and forth, or maybe the, maybe the writer and the artist don't really have a connection other than through an editor. And I can't remember what it was or where I saw this, but it's some famous example of, you know, a writer asked for something and the artist who was based in Brazil or some, somewhere like that uh, drew something and turned it in like last minute, you know, and they didn't have time to make any kind of changes, but it was literally what the writer had asked for. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the writer had used like American slang. And okay. so it wasn't, that wasn't, wasn't what, was supposed to have been drawn. And, and I wish I could give the specific example. But um, anyway, it, uh, I, I think it was something like an asteroid and the, the, the artist drew some kind of face on it or something because he thought that's what the writer wanted and, and you know, that wasn't the case at all. Um, so something strange like that. So I, I've, heard, I've heard those kind of horror stories. Uh, luckily, Fabio's uh, English is much better than my Italian. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so we really don't, we really have not run into any kind of issues. Um, uh, there, you know, I, I think with occasionally with some other artists, there have been some, some translation issues. Like I'm working on a a short story now, um, with, with the artist Kyle Roberts, he's actually co-writing with me and we've, we've hired out an, an artist who I think is from Brazil. Um, and Kyle is mostly sort of the liaison so I'm not really kind of dealing with that, but I've heard from him that there have been some, some kind of translation issues. And so, yeah, I guess that is a, uh, that is a danger, but I guess the hope is that when you're, uh, you know, when you're seeking out an artist and you're, you're writing and having that initial contact, I guess the, the hope is that you have kind of enough conversations that you can get a good feeling on, on whether or not, you know, is there going to be a language barrier here? Mm-hmm. So um, I know that you're just back from San Diego. Um, do you want to talk about uh, what you were doing there? I'm assuming maybe you were you were trying to do a bit of networking while you were out there. Uh, how was your experience there? Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. Um, I, I've been out a few years in a row. I used to go um, maybe a decade ago uh, before my you know my kids got old enough that I couldn't really get away. Um, but, uh, the last few years I've been, and this, I, I think was definitely my most productive con. Um, you know, I just, I, I don't table or anything like that. I, I know some people who have done that and it's just, uh, you know, it's so expensive in San Diego, uh, mm-hmm. just getting the table and the hotel rooms and getting out there. Um, I didn't feel like I was quite ready to do that. I haven't done a whole lot of tabling. Um, so I just like getting out and hitting the floor and getting FaceTime with other pros that I've met in the past, some editors that I've met in the past. And, um, and it seems like this, uh, for whatever reason, this was maybe my third year in a row. And this seemed to be the year that things sort of seemed to be coalescing and maybe some projects started to come together. So uh, fingers crossed. But yeah, a great, great, great weekend. So do you think that like sort of um, showing that you're um, committed to it and showing up like 
maybe like multiple years shows that those those editors and those artists that like hey i'm i'm really serious about this this is not something that like you know fly to fly by night i just decided i'm going to show up like you're you're dedicated you're there you're you're pounding the pavement each year do you think do you think that helps i think it makes a huge difference um you know what's great about the internet is that you can like i currently live in arkansas um, and yeah, I've kind of bounced around from New York to Atlanta. Now I'm in, in Arkansas. And, um, and so I'm not really, I don't have that community of comics creators around me or, or creative people around me where I am. So what's great about the internet is that you can connect with anyone and you can do this job from anywhere. But, um, I'll tell you, there's like nothing can beat FaceTime, just being face to face um, you know, like chatting with you like this is great, mm-hmm. but it's it's not like when when we saw each other at Heroes Con last Correct. year, right? Yeah. We were able to have a, a face-to-face conversation and you really kind of make that connection with somebody. Um, so I so I do, I really do think that's important. And it does seem to be, I know it's kind of a cliche, but it does sort of seem to be where a lot of the magic happens just because... People are there, they're going out, they're hanging out socially, and and you just kind of, I don't know, you're, you're just kind of talking about things and somehow projects start to come together. And, and I think when, when you're an editor, um, especially at a big company, you... I don't know, like, like when, when you're doing a project, this is what I always tell my acting students, like when, when you're doing a project, you want to work with your friends, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to, especially some of, you know, when I'm talking to students who are in school, it's like if they're giving a school assignment, they don't want to work necessarily with the new kid that they don't know. They want to work on a project with their friends. And it's sort of the same way, like as you get higher and higher up the chain, right? Quentin Tarantino wants to work with his friends. That's why the same people appear in his movies all the time, right? Steven Spielberg wants to work with his friends. Um, and, and, and so it's the same with the comics companies, right? And so I, I think showing up, uh, showing that you're dedicated and just reminding people that you exist and, and having that, those brief moments of connection in person, I, I just think that goes a long way to when somebody's thinking of, well, who do I want to work with on this project? They can think about that conversation you had at the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that makes a difference. Okay. So uh, tying on to that, like, how do you find like a middle ground of like, hey, I'm networking, but I'm not good. I'm, you know, I'm not being too aggressive. I'm, I'm, I'm playing this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, I'm playing this cool. I'm not, uh, I'm not coming on, you know, too hard trying to get a job, but I am trying to let you know that, you know, I'm, I'm available for jobs that might come up in the future. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it is a fine line. I think you, um, you know, I think in the bars, you, you don't necessarily want to uh, come on too strong. You know, mm-hmm. you want that to be maybe a little more social. Um, but you let people know that, that you're a writer, you're a creator. Um, you know, for instance, like I, I, had an, I, I had an interaction with somebody on the con floor um, this, just this last weekend. And it was a publisher. And we, you know, I stopped by the table and I just started talking with them. And um, I didn't necessarily know who I was talking to behind the table, mm-hmm. but, um, but, you know, I started talking about a book of theirs that I really liked that I'd backed on Kickstarter and we just kind of started having a conversation. And I don't even remember what it was that I said, but something maybe tipped this person off that like I wasn't just a random, you know, fan walking around the con. And, and he, so he said, Hey, are you a comics creator? And I said, yeah, I am. And he was like, Oh, well, let me give you my card. And he was like, you're chatting up the right guy. Cause I'm the acquisitions editor. Cool. So, you know, at that point it was a perfect opportunity to pitch my project, you know, and I handed him a postcard and, uh, and he took it and was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to back this. Like he, he liked the pitch and, uh, and it was good. And now I've got his contact information. I can follow up with him later. So it's really, um, you know, I, I do think there's a fine line there. You don't want to come on too strong. You don't want to be too pushy. But if somebody opens the door, um, you know, t- take it, take it. I mean, there have been opportunities too where on the con floor I've walked up to editors that I saw on a panel and you can just say, you know, hey, I saw you on that panel. I really liked what you had to say. Um, you know, I, I, this is something I'm interested in doing. Hey, can I send you, I've, I've got this thing. Uh, do you mind if I email you? 
mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, maybe they'll look at it, maybe they won't, but most people will say, yeah, sure. And that's an invitation and you can send it to them. And if they, uh, you know, probably nine times out of 10, if they're an editor at a big company, they're going to be too busy to look at it. Mm-hmm. But if they, um, if they get that moment and they like it and it works out, that's great. You just kind of have to take as many, open up as many opportunities as you can for yourself. Yeah. And so are you also like, uh, leaving like, materials uh with people in hopes that that they'll look because you know i do that sometimes and i'm just like like you said it's like i'm not sure if this person's actually gonna look at it you know you know they 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 might be packing up their suitcase later after con and space is at a premium and i'm like is, is my book gonna make make it into their into their suitcase so do you do you do that as well yeah, I, I have I have not really done that, um, and I don't I, I don't can't speak to whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I just simply haven't done it. I've mostly um, I've mostly just talked about the work that I've done. Um, like I said, I was handing out postcards this weekend for the Kickstarter, um, and so uh, you know I've I've. I've heard of people doing that and I've heard of people having success doing that. I, I do know that, you know, just as somebody who's been on the other side for like film and, and TV type projects, it can get overwhelming when everybody's trying to give you a headshot, you know, everybody's trying to give you their reel. Um, so in this case, you know, everybody trying to give you their comic, I, I think it can be tough to keep up with and you've got a bunch of stuff and you're like, what am I really going to do with this? So I, I try to take the approach of just, um, you know, making the connection and then uh, trying to send them something later. Um, whether or not that's a good approach, who, who knows? Okay. And you mentioned it um, a little bit in your answer here. You, you do do some work outside of, of comics. Um, you do, you do voice acting and you, I think you mentioned earlier that uh, if I, if I remember correctly, you said that you were teaching acting. Yes. Yeah. So um, are there any sort of parallels you can draw from, you know, uh, the acting and, and, and storytelling in, in comics? Yeah. I, I, so for me, like I've been a professional actor since I was like eight and um, and so, you know, without revealing how old I am now, uh, let's just say that I've been doing this for a long time. And and I think that's how, like it's for sure helped me with writing because uh, having to speak dialogue out loud. I know I know what sounds good coming out of somebody's mouth um, and I and I know what would be difficult to say. I know what what rings false. Um, so I think that's really kind of given me a leg up in terms of writing dialogue. And I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for any actor um, to just take an acting class or sorry, any writer to take an acting class because it, it will improve your dialogue. And then, and then if you can, you know, also take an improv class because writing is really improv. So, um, so I think the more you can kind of get comfortable with improv and with acting, the, the more that will influence your storytelling and your, your facility for dialogue. I think also when you're talking about um, promoting, right? So uh, I've, heard, I've heard Mark Miller say that, uh, that if you're going to do comics, like you, you have to have a little bit of the carny in you, um, like the carnival barker. And I think that's true. And I think you have to... Um, you know, it, it, it helps to be comfortable on camera, right? Like with these Kickstarter campaigns, you're constantly making Kickstarter videos. Um, I, I think being comfortable on camera, being able to, to make something um, interesting for people to watch and, and also to look like you're sort of relaxed and having fun, I think that goes a long way towards selling it. So, um, so yeah, I, I really, I highly recommend it. Um, and I, I mean, I find all the time parallels between acting and, and, and writing. And like I was saying before, I, I tell my students, you know, make, make friends. Net, networking is not about like going to somebody above you and like trying to, to get in and wheedle your way in. It's more about just making friends. And the people that you're in the room with now, those are going to be your friends that you're going to come up with. And in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, those people are going to be in positions of power and they can help you or vice versa. You can be in a position of power and you can help them. So it's a two-way street. It's not just a sort of me, me, me. 
Yeah, that's um, that's some great advice uh, that I hadn't really thought about about the the acting classes and the improv classes. I I know uh, I've seen your most recent video for your Kickstarter, and the the production value is 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 really great on that. And uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of back at the one that I did where I was just sort of sitting at my desk, and I realized that this next one coming up, I'm going to have to uh, make some improvements. So that that's some great advice there. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I had fun. So um. I have a question though about you said about how um, taking an acting class um, helps you learn dialogue, um, yeah. but there's a there's a little bit of like dialogue in comics that you have to kind of change a little bit from the way like everyday people speak. You know, if you right. think about and we're moving away from this with like modern comics, but if you think about like an X Men comic in the '80s, you know, it would be like. I, Magneto, who have just walked through the store, am going to tell you, Wolverine, why I'm going to attack your, 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 your school here. So, like, how do you, how do you play that, um, like, middle ground where you're, you're, you're still being descriptive, but you're not doing that sort of that overriding and, and you're, you're still using a little bit of the, the traditional sort of comic book dialogue? Yeah, for sure. I, I think... I think a lot of modern comics, um, there, there's a lot that's good about them, and and we've so we have sort of moved in this great direction in a lot of ways. I do think one thing that gets missed is sort of that feeling of every issue is somebody's first issue, and so there are sometimes. Well, I, I'll I'll pick up a book that's like, you know, critically acclaimed, and and I'll pick it up either either a new issue and I can't make heads or tails of what's going on, or I'll or even I'll pick up the first trade and I'm like I, I don't know who's who I don't know I, I know people like this book but I I can't tell what's going on, um and and so I don't know that we necessarily want to go back to those X Men days of mm-hmm. you know I Magneto. I'm going to kill you, Wolverine. You, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know that we necessarily need to do that, but I, I agree with you that there does need to be some kind of middle ground where where it is naturalistic dialogue, but you are also giving the reader all the information that they need. Um, it's tough. You know, somebody who I think is, is good at that, uh, actually, and this should come as no surprise, is Alan Moore. Um, you know, he's, if you, if you look at some of his stuff in the eighties, like the swamp things and the, you know, miracle man, um, some of those, you know, as brilliant as they are, some of them were, were actually, you know, overwritten a bit, maybe like dialogue wise or, or caption wise. Um, uh, not in a, not in a terrible way. And I, and I like, you know, who is this guy critiquing Alan Moore? But if you if you'll notice, like in some of his later comics, like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, you know some of the the ABC stuff, he's he really pared back on uh, on the amount of dialogue and the amount of captions, and yet he still gives you all the information that you need. It's just it's so streamlined, it's so succinct. Um, he's really the, the master of that. And I, I think that first volume of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in particular, uh, he just does it so, so very well. And I think I, I, think I even heard, um, I was at a panel this weekend at San Diego and one of the creators, uh, David, David Blake Lucarelli, who does uh, Tinseltown, he was on a panel and he said something that, that I had never heard before, but it makes perfect sense. It was that Alan Moore uh, had has this rule where it's like, you can only have 210 words on a comics page. And it's like, however you divide that up, you know, divide that up by the number of panels, but that's how many words you can put on the page. And, um, and I know it kind of sounds silly to put rules like that on yourself, but, but I find as a writer that having rules really frees you. Having boundaries creates freedom. And, um, and, I totally, uh, I totally believe that, that he follows this, especially now. I don't think he did back in the day, but I think that's sort of what he's arrived at. And it really just, it just works. So um, I guess this is a, a, lo- a long way of saying that, uh, that yes, dialogue has to be naturalistic, but you, you do have to add some, some extra information. I mean, I, I, uh, for sure, reading League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I was reading stuff going, well, you know, if I if I were just seeing this written down as a script on a page, I might think, well, this is 
purely expository. Um, and he's just telling me things that the reader needs to know. But the way that he phrases it uh, and the way that it melds with, uh, you know, Kevin O'Neill's artwork, and he's drawing all these wonderful things going on in the panels, um, it, just, it just works. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. You got, it's, it's, like, it's like playing music or, or acting or anything else. Sometimes you just kind of have to do it by feel. Mm-hmm. and uh and just sort of sort of feel it out yeah um so like uh let's let's talk a little bit about your your overall writing process when you go into a story are you are, are you an outliner are you a sort of a pantser with with the ending in mind uh, how, do, how do you go about go about that yeah so i'm totally an outliner um and i used to be I think I used to be a little more slavish to the outline. I'm now sort of of the opinion that, um, so, so it's sort of like a, I, I like to stake out a middle ground between being a plotter and a pantser, right? Like mm-hmm. I, think, I think you have to know where you're going, right? Like there's that, I guess there's that famous quote, and I, of course now I, that I'm on the spot, I can't think of who said it or exactly how it's phrased, but it's something like, you know, writing for them is you get in the car at night and you turn on the headlights and you just follow the headlights and somehow you make it to your destination, right? And that was, that was somebody basically saying like, I don't have a plot, I don't outline, I just start writing and I figure it out. And um, you know, the problem with analogies is that like every jerk wants to poke holes in your analogy, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that jerk, but like when, I don't know about you, but I never just get in the car and turn on my headlights and start driving with no destination in mind, no idea where I'm going, you know, and my kids are always like, oh, let's do that. Let's get in the car and like, we'll just come to an intersection and just be like right or left and then we'll just go, right? We'll just wind up somewhere. And I don't think that's a great way of driving, you know, uh, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily a great way of writing. I like to, I like to get in the car and know where I'm going. So I like to know say, okay, I'm, I'm traveling from, uh, from Northwest Arkansas to St. Louis, right? But, I, you know, and I, and I have a general idea of the route that's going to get me to St. Louis, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I reserve the right to pull off at a lookout, you know? I reserve the right to see a sign that says Scenic Byway, and pull off and and drive another way. I reserve the right to say, oh, you know what? This town's kind of over here, and that would be cool to go check out too. So, um, so when I when I come up with a story, I I like to have uh, I like to have the overall idea of the story. I like to be able to boil it down into a log line so that I can pitch it very succinctly. I like to then, um, you know, if it's a multi-issue thing, I like to have a general idea, a general sense of what's going to happen in each of the issues. And then, um, and then I, then I start breaking it down page by page, you know, what's going to happen on page one, what's going to happen on page two, what's going to happen on page three. And then once I do that, it's just like, it's just sort of refining further and further. Well, how many panels is this going to take? How many panels is that page going to take? Sometimes you get into it and, and your best laid plans go awry mm-hmm. and you, you think you can do something in a page and you realize, oh boy, I need two pages. And that's, and that's happened even with Red Christmas. You know, I wrote something, a very ambitious page that I gave to Fabio and he was like, I think this is a double page spread. And, and he was totally right. It was much better as a double page spread. Um, and so then you kind of figure it out and you figure out what other kind of short t- shortcuts you can take later. Because again, I'm, I'm big into having boundaries and having, um, having some rules. And so I, I try to stick to that 22 page, uh, page count. And I think, uh, you know, part of that is financial, right? Like I don't want to shell out more money for artists to draw an extra page that I hadn't planned for. Um, but part of that is also just, I, I think, I think having boundaries helps you. So, um, you know, once you get into the actual writing, um, and the more kind of experience that I've gotten working this way, I've gotten better about, you know, okay, this, you know, I said this was going to be five panels, maybe it's six, maybe I can do it in four, you know, but it's, but I'm not too far off my outline, but I always kind of reserve the right 
uh, as you're writing the script to sort of really figure out what's, well, what's, what's working, what's coming to life. Um, you know, can I, can I lose anything that I thought I was going to have? Yeah. I know that for me uh, early on when I was doing some projects, I, I had these monster pages with like 13 or 14 panels. Yeah. And the artist was like, yeah, you know, this, you're, you're cramming too much in. So I was, I, I generally try to stick with that. If, if I get more than like seven panels on a page, I start to have that sort of mental trigger in my head saying, Hey, there's, there's too much going on here. And like, uh, go back and streamline this or go back and figure out like, what does it need to be here so that you stick to that six, seven, you really don't want to be going more more than that so yeah I, yeah I hear you about the you know having the boundaries you can you can you can bend them a, a few times here or break them a few times here but you don't constantly want to be bending them or breaking them yeah for sure um, so how about your writing practice are you uh, sort of like a like a daily writer is there something you you, you aim for like every day a, a goal or are you just sort of like when inspiration hits you 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 sit down and and, and start writing I'm definitely more of a daily writer. Um, I'm a big believer that you just have to do things consistently to, um, to get the results that you want. Um, that said, like sometimes, sometimes writing is thinking about the project. And I, and I think the, the more, uh, the more experience I get, the more comfortable I get with the idea that, yeah, you know what, today, today I didn't necessarily write a certain amount. But, um, but I thought a lot about the project or I, or I, you know, Neil Gaiman talks about uh, having a compost heap, right? Where you're, you're, uh, you're taking things in and that's all becoming part of the compost heap. So some days the writing is, uh, is just putting things on the compost heap, putting things on the compost heap. You, you have to sort of refill whatever it is that inspires you. And, um, and so I've, I've become better about being okay at that. Like if I'm like right now I'm working on this Kickstarter and sometimes my writing is just writing ad copy, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, well, today I'm writing a Facebook ad or today I'm writing an article for bleeding cool. And it's like, you know what? That's, that's my writing for today. But, but it's helping me refine how I'm telling this story. It's helping me how I'm thinking about telling this story. So, so it's all grist for the mill. Um, but yeah, generally I, I try to write, like if I'm really working on a project, um, like in deep, I'm, um, I'm working every day. I try to work for a few hours a day. Um, I don't necessarily have page counts I try to hit. Mm -hmm. It's more of just like, did I put in the time? Do I feel like I, I did a good day's work? And, and the key for me is, um, is to put in enough work that you feel like you made really good progress, but not so much work that you're just spent, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, like I know there are those writers, I, I think I've heard Stephen King does this, but I, I, there have been a ton of writers that have said this, that like you type and type and type, and then like when you hit your word count, then you just stop. Well, even if you're in the middle of a sentence, right? Mm -hmm. You just stop. So that then the next day you come and you sit down and well, you don't have to think about what it is you're doing, right? You're just, you finish that sentence yeah. and then you keep going. And for me, I find like getting back into it, I'll, I'll usually sit down and I'll start by revising whatever it was I did yesterday. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and once I do that, that kind of gets me back into the rhythm of things so that then I don't, I don't have to ramp myself up. You know, I can just write the next scene. Um, and that way the book, the, the book or the comic or the script, it's getting, it's getting revised and polished as you go along. Um, and, and you're just slow and steady wins the race, man. You're just adding one, one brick at a time. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear you there. Um, a question I have is, um, do you often like break story when you're, you're not sitting down and you're not in front of the keyboard, say you're, you're walking or driving? How many times does sort of that unconscious part of your mind um, sort of pop an idea and you're like, oh, that's where I should go with the story? Does, does that happen to you often? All the time, all the time. And that's, there, there's a reason for that. And I, I, 
can't remember exactly what the scientific explanation is, but there's a, um, there's a really old writing book called, uh, I think it's just simply called Becoming a Writer by a writer named Dorothea Brand. Okay. And she was sort of like the Julia Cameron of her day. This was like maybe the 1930s, maybe earlier. I'm not quite sure. But um, Julia Cameron does um, The Artist's Way. And a lot of those exercises are straight out of Dorothea Brand and becoming a writer. But one of the things she talks about is how important that is, that having downtime where you're not sitting at the typewriter, mm -hmm. where you're not trying to bang it out. And this sort of goes back to what I was talking about, that sometimes thinking about the work or, or resting is the work. And she's, you know, she went through this whole kind of scientific explanation about why your brain works that way. But, but doing a physical activity that's repetitive relaxes your brain enough that your brain starts to make these creative connections. And so that's why, you know, you hear people say they get ideas in the shower, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's a physical activity that's repetitive. You're, you're soaping up, right? You're lathering up, you're rinsing off, you're washing the hair, right? It's, it's these repetitive kind of almost mindless motions that your body is going through. It's also why you hear writers say a lot that they go on walks, mm -hmm. right? They, um, uh, that walking, that repetitive, mindless motion of walking gets, those, gets the brain firing. Same thing with like gardening, right? Again, just a mindless physical motion. And that's, that's when things kind of happen. So, um, so yeah, I think sometimes the rest is the work. And that, uh, that yeah, if, if, if you're spent and, and things aren't really coming like just get up go for a walk go go do something else but um you know let let your brain make those connections what is your your process of for capturing um capturing those thoughts are you a, a notebook guy a, a smartphone guy uh, i i don't know how many times i've been out on a run and sort of stopped and pulled out my phone and emailed myself so that when i get back i that 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 thought that popped into my mind does i don't i don't forget it so what's your process yeah, so I um, generally, I, you know, I, I used to be a big note taker. And now if it's something like super important or something that I think is just so brilliant, I will usually pull out my phone and take a note. Um, the, the problem with me and notes is that I make all these notes. Like I have, um, so I know the listeners can't see me, but you can, right? I've got, I've got all of these legal notebooks. I mean, I've got multiple ones sitting around here. And I just take pages and pages of notes on things. And then I never go back and look at them. So I never, like, like last night I was trying to find something um, that I'd written down to tell my wife. And I was like, well, which notebook is this in? And what page is it on? Like, it just took me forever to find it. Mm -hmm. um, at least the phone kind of keeps things organized and, and you always have your phone with you. So mm -hmm. I've got, um, uh, so I've got some notes on the phone, but I'm, you know, I heard, and it may have even been John Byrne, I saw say this, that he's basically like come to the conclusion that if it's a great idea, he'll remember it. And, uh, and, and I've sort of been operating under that assumption. I, I, don't know, I don't know whether or not that's true or that's a smart way of working. Um, but, but for me, that seems to work where it's like, you know what, if it really was a good idea, I'll remember that. Um, so take, take that for what it's worth. Okay. I think we've done a, a pretty decent uh, uh, interview on, on process here. Um, what are your next uh, steps in comics? Are you, you going to do a, a, another story in this series? Or are you, you thinking maybe you're going to branch off into one of your other series or, or start something original? Yeah. So, um, so we're going to finish up Red Christmas. We've done three issues of that. We've got one more issue that we're going to kickstart later in the year. Um, so we're going to finally wrap that story up. Uh, this current arc of PBOW is going to be four issues. So um, I've got to figure out, do I want to do four uh, Kickstarters for that? Or do I want to do uh, something else? Uh, you know, uh, do I want to do just a big Kickstarter for a, a trade paperback or what? But um, 
<laughs> Can you hear my cat whining? By the uh, way, just just a little bit, but it's not too too bad. It's a little <laughs> bit of uh, it's a little bit of atmosphere for for the podcast. Oh, good, good. Yeah, he really wants to come into my office. Um, <laughs> but then you'll just hear nothing but purring on the microphone. So apologies for that. Um, anyway, I you know I, I got to figure out whether I just want to do a whole bunch of kickstarters for this or find another way to get it done and get it out there, but. Um, but we are going to finish this next volume. If it's wildly successful, there will be more volumes of PBOW. And then beyond that, uh, I, I don't know. I've got, some, I've got some film projects in the works that uh, might be a little early to talk about. Uh, but I was hired to, to write a, a horror screenplay. Um, and that seems to be moving forward. Um, and, uh, and then another, uh, another manga project that... Uh, is a little bit different from what I'm doing uh, with Fried, but um, it was a project that um, I thought was maybe dead, but that maybe seems to be coming to life again. And so uh, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. And then I'm just uh, always pitching, so. Very cool. So um, you mentioned the script, um, and I know that earlier in the, in the interview, you said you like to have like a, an outline for your comics where like this is gonna happen in a page. And I've also, I've often heard that like, I think I have this right that like one one page of a screenplay should like translate to to one minute of screen time on yeah. a on a on a movie or a TV show so have you found any have you found your comics writing has sort of helped you make sure that hey that that one minute of screen time I'm I'm getting something done here you know I'm moving the story along I'm not just sort of having two people sort of sit here and not progress the story so have you have you found any parallels there yeah, definitely. I, I mean, especially, um, you know, because comics, comics and film are both visual mediums. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so having to think visually for comics and, and seeing how an artist, especially seeing how an artist interprets the script um, and seeing, you know, and seeing how that comes to life. Um, you know, because I've had, I, I've had many more opportunities to see comic scripts that I've written turn into an actual comic mm -hmm. than I've, than I've had opportunity to see a film script that I've written turn into an actual film. So I think the learning experience for me on that was learning to think more visually. And so now when I, when I tackle, uh, when I approach a film script, I'm thinking, I, I mean, I've always tried to think visually, but, but for me back in the day, writing film scripts meant really focusing on dialogue. And now I'm trying more and more to bring in that visual element. What's the camera seeing? What's the image we're seeing? Um, and, and so that's, that's definitely helped get across information more succinctly. So yeah, I, I think it all, I think it all feeds into each other. I think every, I mean, even writing songs, I think helps. You know, I think working in a different medium uh, helps everything. Yeah, and a lot of like TV shows and movies, uh, one of the processes is the storyboards, which is yeah. very similar um, to, to a comic book page. So there's, there's got to be a little bit of experience that you have there, sort of as you're writing, maybe you kind of see like storyboards in, in your head, or are you seeing like actual, are you, is the movie playing in your head, or are you maybe seeing storyboards or, or, or both? Um, I'm, mostly, I'm mostly seeing the story move in my head, like the film playing in my head and trying to imagine what actors I might cast in that role mm -hmm. and, and, you know, hear those voices. Um, but, you know, I did, I directed a short film uh, not that long ago, maybe a year or two ago. And, um, and it was the first time I really worked from storyboards. I mean, I've usually just kind of worked from a shot list. And, um, and for me, that was a huge eye opener, um, just how, uh, how important it is to have a storyboard so that you can, you can really put the shots together and sort of assemble the movie in your head before you, uh, before you shoot anything. Um, so that, so that's really, uh, you know, I've, as a filmmaker, I've been generally more of an improviser. Like I said, I've had the shot list, but um, but I've kind of improvised more than than anything else. But having that storyboard for sure really helped. So um, this is the first time I've ever heard of a, a shot list. Um, is that just a um, like a listing of the the scenes that you you, you need to film? Um, 
and generally, I guess also another thing I've heard is uh, you don't really film a movie or a TV show in sort of like chronological order. Like, you know, if every, every scene that you need is taking place in this location, you sort of, you film all of those at one time and then, and then you put them together. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the shot list is basically, I mean, it's, it's sort of is what it, what it says, right? It's a, it's a list of the shots that you want. So, you know, I want to get a two shot of, of these people talking. I want to get, uh, you know, I want to get a master shot of the whole scene. I want to get an insert shot of the tiny plastic elephant, you know, whatever, uh, whatever it is you, you know that you need to assemble the movie, uh, you can get. So it's sort of like, I mean, it's like a storyboard, uh, except that it's literally just a list of shots. Okay. But but for, for me, actually turning that into a storyboard um, made a huge difference in the ease with which I was able to assemble the, the, the final picture. But, um, but yeah, yeah, you, you generally, because of budget constraints, you can't shoot in chronological order, right? Like you, um, if you're bouncing around from location to location, you're going to shoot everything in one location. If it's all, if it's all supposedly taking one place in one day with a particular set of wardrobe, right? You might do all of those shots. Um, if there's a lot of, um, special effects, right? That, that might be its own day. Um, and generally, like with a film, you start you start out shooting the simple stuff first, right? You okay. want to kind of ease into it, right? So you, even if uh, even if the movie starts with like this blockbuster scene, right? You probably don't want to throw your actors into that on the first day, right? So you might you might want to do something nice and simple, just to sort of say, hey, we've you know we've broken ground on this project. We've gotten started. It was nice and easy. We had fun, you know. Um, great here here we are um so then yeah then then you've got to kind of assemble it um and you've got to shoot it with continuity in mind how is all of this going to cut together and for sure storyboards help that very cool i think we've touched on a, a number of aspects of storytelling in, in this podcast um but i want to give you a chance to let people know where they can go and, and find information on you and your kickstarter and we will be sure to to link all of this stuff uh in our show notes and on our social media posts but why don't you uh go ahead and let everybody know where your kickstarter is located the name and uh where they can find you online Sure. So the Kickstarter is, uh, it's PBOW World War Bitch number one. And you can find that at www.friedcomics.com slash PBOW. Uh, you can find me online uh, at Twitter at Clay's Evil Twin. And, uh, and the website is uh, friedcomics.com. Okay. And uh, I'm going to encourage everybody uh, when they hear this to, to go search that out because that Kickstarter is running currently as, as we speak. So no, no, uh, no delay. Get on, that, get on that right away. So I'd like to uh, thank everybody for listening uh, to this podcast. And if they would like to give us a follow on social media, like I said, we'll be posting Clay's, Clay's contact information there. We are on Twitter at Construct Compod. We are on Instagram at Constructing Comics Pod. And we are on Facebook at Constructing Comics. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And I'd like to thank uh, Clay for being on. And uh, we will be back with a, another episode uh, very soon. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Bye.